I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the LRB Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Schatz. On this episode, we will be discussing the war in Gaza, which broke out after a surprise attack by Hamas fighters in southern Israel. 1,300 Israelis were killed, a 1,000 of them civilians. More than 250 Israelis are now hostages in the Gaza Strip. Since then, Israel's airstrikes have led to the death of nearly 3,000 people in Gaza, most of them civilians. Entire families have been killed and neighborhoods flattened. A ground offensive seems to be imminent, and Joe Biden is headed to the region to affirm his unconditional support for Israel and to warn Iran, Hezbollah, and Syria not to become involved. Israel and Hamas have fought numerous wars since Israel's disengagement in 2005, but this war feels much more significant, and the peoples of Israel and Palestine are both reeling, traumatized, apprehensive, bracing for what comes next. The regional and international implications, too, are enormous. The Israeli-Saudi rapprochement that the United States sought to broker is for the foreseeable future suspended. Already, there have been hideous attacks carried out against civilians abroad. A six-year-old Palestinian boy was murdered in Illinois, his mother gravely injured by the family's landlord in apparent retribution for Hamas's assault. There has been a spike in anti-Semitic incidents in France. Meanwhile, the Western governments that have lined up behind Israel have in effect been criminalizing Palestinian dissent, banning demonstrations, even the display of the Palestinian flag. This war seems to know no borders, and there is so far no end in sight. Joining me on this episode to discuss these developments are two of the most thoughtful commentators on Israel-Palestine, Mikhail Sfard, a human rights lawyer based in Israel, and Amjad Iraqi, a London-based Palestinian writer who is an editor at the online journal 972. And I should just say, since events are moving so quickly on the ground, that this conversation was recorded on October 17, Tuesday at 4 p.m. London time. Mikhail Sfard, Amjad Iraqi, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having us. Thank you. On October 7, Hamas launched an astonishing offensive that almost no one, certainly not the Israelis, thought the organization was capable of. Amjad, um, I want to start with you. You wrote in your piece in the LRB blog that while Palestinians and Israelis have grown accustomed to wars in the South, this war is nothing like the others. Why is that? What makes this war so different? Yeah, uh, first of all, thanks again for having us, Adam, um, and to be here with uh, Mikhail, who I know is a very thoughtful thinker on this. Um, then the full developments of what happened, you know, we're still trying to kind of sift through the weeds, and even the the political and military establishments haven't got all the details clear. But there are kind of two dimensions that we can sort of think about why this is such a... Um, different sort of game changer from what we've seen in the past. Um, one is uh, a kind of 
complete upending of a certain political and military understanding between Israel and Hamas and what that means for uh, for that political dynamic. And the other, uh, which has really dominated, I think, the understanding of this moment is what are the massacres and atrocities uh, at a scale of Israelis in the southern communities at a scale which has not been seen um, if not in, either in decades or even in much of Israel's history. So these two dimensions of how Hamas has kind of broken out of this uh, this Gaza arrangement and the fact that these atrocities happen in, in the South, I think these are the two elements that really break up what is regarded in Israel-Palestine as a status quo, which to put bluntly is the system of apartheid that exists between the river and the sea, which has many different manifestations, but of which Gaza is an integral piece of that and not an exception to that. And time will tell exactly how far the status quo will be upended, whether it will be intensified or heightened by the Israeli authorities that govern this, how Palestinian resistance and political activism will push back against that. Uh, But it's quite evident that those two shocking factors, I think, have really changed that playing field quite a bit. Mikhail, is that also your understanding of the originality um, of what we're seeing right now, the upending of the status quo and the mass casualties in southern Israel? Absolutely, but I think I I would like to add something. I think... I think the the uh, visions of the atrocity um, of atrocities that uh, um, were committed in southern Israel uh, on on Sabbath, uh, October seventh, um, ignite in the Israeli collective um, psychic um, probably the most fundamental fear that is deeply ingrained in every Israeli from early age, and that's a fear of not not war but annihilation um, the the scenes immediately provoked uh, analogies to pogroms of 19th century eastern europe and to the holocaust and uh, you know we can we can discuss the question of the if these are rational um, analogies um, i suspect they're not but uh, definitely not with uh, israel having one probably one of the strongest armies in the world, even if it failed miserably in this case. Yet it is one of the most uh, strongest uh, armies in the world, and, and uh, Hamas is, uh, is after all not uh, a strong uh, party. Uh, but I think that this is, uh, it goes deep to the, to the, to the core of, of, of what Israelis are most afraid of, of the of the imminent uh, uh, attempt to annihilate them that is always behind the corner. And at the same time, and I don't want to speak on behalf of Palestinians because I'm not a Palestinian, but knowing a a, a bit about Palestinian uh, um, phobias or or deepest uh, uh, scares, you know the 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 forced transfer of hundreds of thousands of more than a million people from northern Gaza down to the southern part of the strip. Um, I'm sure is uh, re- invoking um, the 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 national trauma of the of the Nakba of 1948 and and ethnic cleansing. Amjad, perhaps you'd like to. To comment on that from your own experience, my what I've you know what I was just hearing on uh, the uh, 
New York Times Daily podcast from a woman in Gaza was that uh, she no longer viewed, she no longer spoke of, of Gaza as an open air prison. Now she called it an open air cemetery. And I'm wondering, uh, there is, of course, this fear of of a return to ethnic cleansing, of population transfer, and so on, going back to the Nakba. But is there also, in some sense, also a fear that this time it could spell annihilation as well? This is one of the kind of sort of the most dominant feelings that we're getting from a lot of Palestinians, certainly in Gaza, and even you know the reverberations of that across Palestinian society all around. Uh, one of the things I've been so surprised by I mean, almost like the breaking of a dam, is suddenly the word genocide and genocidal intent has now become sort of front and center of how people are understanding the Israeli response. Uh, certainly also in the way that uh, Hamas kind of launched these attacks in the south. But if a few weeks ago, people were still kind of facing backlashes and punishments for even using the word apartheid to describe the Israeli regime, um, and having that conflated with anti-Semitism and seeing being seen as beyond the pale in many kind of public forms institutions, suddenly the fact that people are now talking about the Israeli leaders having genocidal rhetoric, that the way that they're describing uh, what they plan to do to Gaza, um, and being very blunt that you know there is nothing about deterrence here, it's nothing about precision. We are here to bombard. We are here to choke as much of the life of Gaza as possible. Uh, by really upping the siege. And so, you know, all these kind of fears, which are, you know, they don't just happen because of the war. They're a constant feature of Palestinian life under the Israeli system and regime. Uh, and this is really the most sort of heightened, expedited version of that, um, uh, not just by seeing hundreds of thousands of people fleeing the north of Gaza, but the very fact that they might be pushed out uh, if the geopolitical circumstances allow it, pushed out into the Sinai Desert. Uh, these are very real fears that, you know, we're still trying to see what the military has planned. But uh, that is, uh, as Michal said, it's very much invoking this uh, in in real time. Hmm. Um, you know, suppose, Amjad, that um, Hamas had limited itself to attacking Israeli border posts, killing those who resisted, and then taking back as many soldiers as they could um, back to Gaza as hostages. Um, one can imagine that the reaction would have been a certain recognition of its daring, and also an embarrassment uh, for the Israelis. There would have been airstrikes, but international support for Israel might have been more limited. Instead, you have these these mass killings. And um, I'm wondering whether you can explain uh, how, in the view of someone like Mohammed Dave, uh, uh, Hamas's military commander, this aspect of the operation was in the interests of Palestinians. What what were the most significant motives behind the particular form that it took? Yeah, it's been hard to decipher this. Um, like I said, the assault needs to be seen in those two dimensions. And uh, from the facts that we can get, there was that first phase where Hamas targeted military uh, like infrastructure, including the Arabs crossing, including IDF bases, uh, parts along the, the Gaza fence. Um, and so that was that, that kind of initial phase. And for a lot of Palestinians, this is actually what was one of the more symbolic moments, the fact that they're seeing uh, this fence being torn down or blown up or a bulldozer uh, tearing it down or the Erez crossing, which is this kind of this haunted checkpoint uh, where those who are able to get permits are allowed to go through, whether it's for work or permits, so uh, work or medicine, excuse me, and so on. Like this is that kind of 
symbol for Palestinians, which are still taking away from. And even this idea, uh, you know, images that were first coming out, even on Palestinian social media, of uh, of Palestinian paragliders literally flying over the fence. The imagination that that brought up, uh, at least in those initial stages, was quite powerful. And so there was that internal message that Hamas was sending to Gazans that there is there's something out of this cage. And then, of course, there is that se- there's that second dimension of these massacres, and we don't we certainly don't know yet what Hamas exactly had initially planned. We don't know the full scope of these militants, uh, but it's quite indicative that they went into these civilian communities, uh, and a lot of them even had like body cameras and were actually kind of providing live feed of some of these attacks. And you know you have different stories in different communities, but there was no holding back on the civilian population there. Um, and the only kind of, you know, putting aside, the, I mean, the moral horror uh, and as far as I'm concerned, unjust, unjustifiableness of this um, is in Hamas's mind, this idea that it had to create this sort of shock and awe of Israeli state and society. And it did so with absolutely violent effect. It was this idea that, you know, so other people could have advised them differently, but it was this idea that we need to really... Uh, strike Israeli society in a way we have not before in order to upend the status quo. It's quite evident that Hamas could no longer play by what uh, our friend and colleague Tariq Bagouni describes as an equilibrium. Uh, this balance... A violent equilibrium. A very violent yeah. one, exactly. And one that's still activating, especially against Palestinians in Gaza, even when you don't have a round of war. And so something shocking had to happen in Hamas's mind, clearly, in order to in order to break that. Uh, and it's and they obviously knew that there was going to be this massive bombardment and backlash. I still don't know, and many people are still trying to speculate what you know, how far did they think they could get away with this? What exactly is a full game plan? There are geopolitics involved with uh, groups like Hezbollah in the north and other Palestinian factions in Lebanon. Questions about uh, Iranian involvement or not. Um, but like I said, there's, there are these ma- many different audiences that were being targeted by this uh, military assault. Uh, but, the, but the ramifications on innocent people is very evident. Uh, Mikhail, um, you were talking earlier about the way in which this attack tapped into the, the Israeli psyche and the, this deep fear of annihilation. Another, um, I think, very significant of effect of the attack um, was to expose the limits of Israeli intelligence, of the conception, much like in the 1973 war. It turned out that Israel's security doctrine uh, didn't work. Um, but I'm wondering, wasn't the failure to foresee an attack of this sort also rooted in an illusion that a subjugated people wouldn't revolt, that Gazans were confined to their prison and therefore had been, in a sense, neutralized? I'm not sure. I think the Israeli mindset is that Palestinians would always um, conspire to murder and to attack us. Uh, and, and, And to be honest, I think the the intelligence failure is not that interesting. I mean, it's an intelligence failure, but it comes together with a complete break of trust by the Israeli society with its institutions. Um, the institutions that uh, were busy with other stuff, not important stuff. Protecting settlers, right? Weren't, weren't, Protecting weren't... settlers, providing a lot of budget uh, uh, to to their 
you know, to their political allies, the government, um, and trying to get uh, uh, the judicial overhaul uh, uh, implemented. And I think, um, I think what we will see, I'll say something big without an end, without, uh, without, the, without the bottom line, we'll see a huge, huge political backlash. And I have no idea how it will look like. You mentioned uh, the Yom Kippur War of 1973. The Yom Kippur War political backlash transformed um, Israel from a one-party state, basically, for 30 years, into a multi-party system in practice. And um, that's the magnitude of change that I expect. I mean, we're in the eye of the storm. It's difficult, it's difficult yet to to assess, but it, there will be huge immense changes, and I and I at the moment it is difficult to say what would be the exact trajectory of the of this change, and of course the 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 failure of the uh, of the um, uh, intelligence is just you know magnificent. It's a it's a huge uh, um, uh, encompassing all. I mean, someone like me, I was for years. Um, challenging the Israeli idiom that the Israeli army is the most moral army in the world, but I've never challenged the, the issue that it is the strongest in the Middle East, that it knows everything that happens in Gaza, that a person cannot go to the loo, to the, to the restroom, without uh, our intelligence officers knowing about it. And suddenly this, it's just completely took everyone by, by surprise. So, yes, the intelligence and the operational failure will be investigated and, 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 I, and, I, and there will be huge, uh, 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 enormous uh, impact on, on, on the next generations of, uh, of, of um, security uh, establishment uh, people. But I think the most interesting and important uh, backlash would be the political one inside the Israeli society. And what kind will it Will it be uh, a backlash that would just say we need to be even more firm with Palestinians? Or firm is a very, uh, my, my English vocabulary is uh, a bit dull. You know, I mean even more cruel. But, or maybe, maybe something else. Interestingly, the responses of some of the survivors has been to oppose the war in Gaza. Um. I'm sure that's a minority opinion, but still, it's quite striking. Um, well, if, if I may, Adam, just to say, um, around the Gaza border, there were several Israeli um, communities um, that are considered quite uh, moderate in political, in Israeli political terms, and some of the people that were murdered and some of the people that were hijacked and are ho held hostage in were on the left. Are on the left have been working for for coexistence and for peace. You're talking about Vivian Silver, I think, one of them. Vivian Silver is one, but it's not the only one. And we have in the, the human rights community, in, his, in the Israeli human rights community, uh, is mourning uh, many, many people and many families of, of, of our people. Um, Amjad, you were talking earlier about the initial sort of jubilant reaction among Palestinians to the crossing of the uh, of the Eretz the Eretz checkpoint um, and the scenes of the border being bulldozed and so forth, um, can you talk a little bit about how reactions in Palestine, well, among Palestinians, both in Palestine and 
in in Israel uh, have evolved uh, since October seven. I'm I'm imagining uh, that that the war has also had a huge impact on how, for example, Hamas is seen. Um, Hamas had initially staged this t- attack in part to to weaken the Palestinian Authority. That was surely one of the motives. Where where do things stand right now? I mean, at this very moment, the dominant fear, or sorry, the, the dominant feeling is fear. There, and this is from Gaza, also the Palestinians inside Israel, citizens of Israel, and those in the West Bank. Um, in Gaza, it's quite clear and obvious. That right now, they're facing a, an absolutely relentless bombardment where survival is the first and foremost priority for hundreds of thousands of families across the Strip. In the West Bank as well, you know, even those who were watching what was happening, uh, even on that first day, or still trying to understand what went on, they very clearly, they very quickly had to sort of look to their own occupied territory. Uh, the Israeli military kind of went around sort of impl- uh, imposing new closures. You suddenly had a, a new surge of settler violence, which has been uh, escalating for quite a number of years, uh, but that we're seeing now also going in full force. I think we, at least since last week, just over 50 Palestinians have already been killed by soldiers and or settlers. Um, and even inside Israel, uh, you know, even as I'm talking to like, you know, People, people there. People are also terrified of even trying to arrange a demonstration and protest uh, everywhere, and not only from from the media to university administrations to the streets to the police to uh, places of employment. Palestinian citizens are seeing much of Jewish Israeli society. Um, I'm, I'm painting a broad brush, but uh, it's just kind of turning towards them and against them in many, many respects. Uh, the fact that even in, like I was, I was just mentioning, like on campuses, uh, students are already getting uh, expelled or suspended uh, for even posting on social media. There's becoming, and I'm again using a bit of a blunt word, but there is a sense of almost like a totalitarian shift that's uh, that's turning against Palestinian citizens. And it's still in, in the early phases of it. And we've seen glimpses of this um, in previous wars and in previous rounds. And one of the most uh, instructive was in May 2021, uh, where you also had, on the one hand, there was this idea of like a unity intifada or a dignity uh, intifada. And the kind of angle of hope and the idea of liberation that emerged from Palestinians coming out in such masses. Uh, but there was also this other dimension to it of complete horror and violence, uh, including inside Israel between Jewish and Arab uh, citizens and certain communities, especially what are regarded as uh, quote unquote mixed cities, uh, like Haifa and Akka and Lid, especially. Um, and also the war in Gaza itself. And so there are these currents that, you know, almost every episode has that, where there's this sense of Palestinian defiance on one hand, but it very quickly gets taken over by uh, a state and society which, which still holds the uh, levers of power and is able to incur a massive cost on Palestinians from Gaza through Israel to the West Bank. Um, so this is what's really come to dominate uh uh, even as they're trying to understand this moment and what Hamas is, uh, is thinking and what it's planning to do. Uh, shortly after the October 7 attack, uh, Netanyahu declared that Israel was at war and he's since formed a unity cabinet. I'd like to talk to both of you about Netanyahu's strategy in launching a full-scale war, potentially a ground invasion, given his well-known preference for tactical engagements. Also, what effect is this having on him pl- having on him politically inside Israel, where his effort to weaken the judiciary sparked the largest anti-government protest in the country's history. 
So I'm, it's it's so very difficult to to think what goes in in Netanyahu's mind because he's really a, a kind of um, he 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 comes in different forms. This man, but he always his all. Always, his main interest is uh, political survival, and political survival is, um, you know, just the, to paraphrase on this saying about uh, soccer or football, uh, it's not the the most important thing; it's the only important thing. And um, and uh, and now more than ever, because of his judi- his legal um, uh, complications and him being. Uh, um, charged with uh, bribery and other um, white-collar crimes, so survival for him is the issue. And um, and I think um, after digesting the enormity of the failure and the enormity of the of the catastrophe, I think he and this is my of course speculation. I think he realized that the only way for survival is an unquestionable huge military victory and so I'm afraid and look these are I'm, let me say something personal I'm dealing I'm I, I for third for three decades um, this is what I do I work um, to defend the rights of people in Israel Palestine mainly Palestinians and Palestinian communities but also uh, Israeli activists and I'm and, and I've seen a lot of of eras where we went down um, and uh, and that were depressing but nothing like this and one of the reasons that I'm so devastated and so concerned now is that I think he might do a lot of things that uh, um, that Netanyahu of before 2023 would have not done uh, because his survival depends on this huge, huge victory that he uh, is thinking of. Um, and so while ground uh, uh, entry to Gaza was bef- in the past not his um, choice, main choice, although there were, there were ground uh, uh, invasions, in, in, but, but not, not, uh, not the, the scale that we're uh, expecting here, I think this time it will be different. Um, he has to provide uh, uh, the Israelis a sense that they, that we have completely eliminating eliminated the danger from Hamas. And to, I don't know if that it. Can, what would that it, even mean, Mikhail? What, what what would that even mean? Yeah, exactly. I I will tell you what it means. It will means that Israelis believe that this is what happened. That's what it means. So it's just about controlling the, controlling the narrative. It's not about reality. It's about the question of whether he manages to convince the Israeli public that this has been achieved, that there is no Hamas threat anymore. So, so uh, this is why I'm so concerned and afraid. I've never felt afraid. I was, I was, you know, I was. Uh, uh, um, there were many times that I thought bad things might happen but not at this scale. Yeah. Just to build off of what Michael was saying, um, you know, this issue kind of goes beyond Netanyahu as well. Uh, for years now, uh, and especially since the blockade of Gaza uh, was implemented in 2007, it's been quite evident that 
no Israeli institution, neither the politicians nor the generals nor anyone else, has any strategy vis-a-vis the Gaza Strip. And this is something that was even said, I think, by uh, the Israeli state comptroller, for example, in kind of like evaluating and analyzing, you know, what the state plans to do vis-a-vis the strip. And the state comptroller himself said there, there's, there is nothing. There's no plan. It's literally this kind of like sort of winging it uh, with Hamas, and you know, which leads to this de facto equilibrium. Equilibrium, excuse me. Which leads to this de facto equilibrium that uh, that Tagbakani was speaking about. Um, and that's so pervasive across the political and military establishment. And it kind of speaks to something, you know, deeper, you know, beyond this question of um, uh, this sort of like military tactics vis-a-vis Hamas is that psychologically, and this also touches on what Michael was saying about, you know, something that's in the Israeli psyche, is that there was this assumption, including by Netanyahu and including by everyone who's come uh, you know, into the Knesset and his cabinet ever since, um, is that this system was sustainable, that it could hold up, and that yes, you would have occasional cracks um, and these kind of um, these flare-ups, but that the inherent system uh, of occupation and this permanent rule uh, could actually survive, and that it was. And for a lot of Israelis, this was the solution. It was the no-state solution. It was. I mean, it's actually even. It's a bit of a farce to call it a no-state solution. It was. A, it is a one-state solution, of which is the primary rule is about Israeli diktats. It is about Israel maintaining full control through these different manifestations um, and ensuring, again, that there's a, always that, up, that upper class of Jewish-Israeli society and then Palestinians second and lower. And that includes citizens of Israel. And this is one of the biggest successes of the Netanyahu years since 2009, really convincing, even begrudgingly, much of Israeli society that the old theses of how to deal with the Palestinians didn't make sense. No need to talk about a two-state solution. No need to talk about even giving any Palestinians anything beyond a couple of economic uh, incentives here and there, and that idea of economic peace as well, which is not a Netanyahu original idea, um, but really became crystallized under his reign. Um, and that also seeped into the military establishment, that they thought that this arrangement with Hamas uh, could actually keep going and that this no strategy, you know, quote-unquote, um, would, uh, would outlast even this, even this particular government. And this is one of those things that really makes this attack such a game-changer. I mean, beyond, again, the, uh, beyond the atrocities that happened in the South, it's, it's hard to see the regime really going back to the way it was. I don't know what that means and what that looks like. And there are different forces within the Israeli establishment right now fighting it out. You know, the I think the military, uh, you know, there are aspects in the military who want to try to, we're still imagining that they can return that equilibrium. There are others who are saying you need this kind of just flat buffer zone in the north of Gaza. You have uh, others who are saying, especially from the far-right politicians, saying you want to direct reoccupation. We need to bring back the settlements, uh, which is something that they've been saying for years, even before they came to office. Um, and so I think that deeper kind of uh, feeling among much of Israeli society that uh, that apartheid is desired and apartheid is what ensures our security, even if they don't call it apartheid, uh, is what is also kind of tugging at Netanyahu right now. What what option do you uh, do you take in order to maintain that regime in some sort of system and to appease all these multiple forces of where this Gaza needs to be restructured? under this wider regime. 
And, and the fact that Hamas has been running things for many years um, gave them a pretext for saying, uh, we don't have a partner. And I think, you know, for many years, of course, the Israelis had more or less coddled Hamas. I mean, this really goes back to the, the 1980s, but Netanyahu turned it into a veritable policy, didn't he? In many ways, yes. And there's an irony in that sense whereby, you know, that people kind of assume that the Israelis have these different policies between, like, the Palestinian Authority run by Fatah in the West Bank and Hamas in the Gaza Strip. And there's certainly a lot of differences, but in terms of the kind of de facto political realities, they're kind of the same arrangements, that there became these sort of enclaves that each Palestinian Authority is allowed to govern in some in some respects. There are understandings of different kinds of battles and frictions. For the PA, it's most like diplomatic uh, diplomatic battles, and for Hamas, it's like it's military ones. But that everyone gets this slice of the pie in a certain way, and that understanding functioned. And even you, know, you have Israeli politicians and generals themselves admitting that actually Hamas is a huge asset. It's load. It's taking away this massive load of having to directly manage. Uh, the Gazan population. And this is the exact same argumentation that was used in the signing of the Oslo Accords, signed 30 years ago last month, whereby it was not necessarily, I mean, there's a lot of debate and unpacking to be made about this, but in the end, Oslo and the, and the Palestinian Authority made the occupation so much easier for the Israelis, uh, to the point that it was a desired uh, structure. And Hamas was a very useful uh, piece of that, even if they wouldn't necessarily name it as such. It's an Oslo Accords by other means. Um, and like I said, this is now, I think, has been very much upended. I don't think Israeli society, even the military or the politicians, can allow that arrangement to continue. Uh, but that still has to be um, sort of fought out. And unfortunately, Palestinians in Gaza are the ones who are going to be bearing that brunt, both for Hamas politics and the Israelis. Uh, last Friday, uh, the uh, Israelis uh, ordered... 1.1 million Palestinians to move from uh, the north, uh, presumably so that they can begin their their offensive, their ground offensive. Uh, so in effect, uh, more people have been evacuated from uh, the north than were driven out um, during the 1948 uh, catastrophe. Um, and of course, this raises fears among uh, Palestinians that they'll never be able to return, fears of another Nakba. The Americans are also pressuring the Egyptians to open a humanitarian corridor so that people in Gaza uh, can move into the Sinai for the duration of the war. Uh, to what extent do you consider this idea of a second Nakba a real possibility? Or, I mean, or is it a wartime temporary measure, as the Israelis would claim? It's hard to say. Um, uh, like Michael said, like we're kind of still in the eye of the storm. Um, and we were even expecting, for example, a ground invasion a couple of days ago, and that still has not happened. And it's hard to be sure why it's been delayed. Uh, is it uh, that they're still preparing? Is it that they're having second thoughts? Is it international pressure? Uh, it's, it's a little unclear so far. Um, and so at the moment, we can only sort of... Um, make judgments off of is like is our perceptions is our feelings um and it's not to say that it's any less rational per se because i think what we're seeing in gaza the fact that you could they the the fact that the army basically told half of the strip to go down south it's not in it's no longer impossible to think that whether by design or by accident 
masses of Palestinians might find themselves in the Sinai Desert. Um, and I'm not. I'm saying this even as you know, Egypt has been quite blunt in saying that this is not acceptable. Uh, it's an invasion of our own sovereignty, and there are these attempts to package it exactly as these sort of humanitarian corridors. Um, and maybe a lot of Palestinians in Gaza will say, like you know, right now our survival is important, and we need those safe spaces, those safe havens. But even Palestinians there know, they know that if they end up being thrown into the other side of the desert, or if the gate is opened, or if the masses just break down that border, there's no coming back. That the Israeli authorities, as they've always done with Palestinian refugees, will ensure that they can never return to the Gaza Strip, let alone to their original homelands where they were displaced from in 1947 and 48. And so there, you know, you, Palestinians are really caught between a rock and a hard place, and we're still not sure exactly what's going to happen. And, and unfortunately, a lot of this is now really reliant upon international pressure, but, but a lot of those powers, like the United States, seem to be inclined towards involving Egypt in this respect. And... We'll have to see if they're able to persuade them, persuade, excuse me, persuade Cairo, buy them out in some way, and again, if accidents happen along the way in, in the midst of this uh, chaotic war. I mean, we also tend to forget that about a, that only about a third of the people in Gaza trace their origins to the Gaza Strip. The other two thirds are the children and grandchildren of refugees from other parts of Palestine. So they've known that reality for many years, that reality of being forced out of their homes and not being able to return. Mm. Adam, can I can I add? Um, I don't I don't know if there is a um, a real danger of uh, a second Nagba uh, or ethnic cleansing on large scale uh, forced deportation. What I do know, and it's important, that there are central elements in the current Netanyahu coalition that openly advocate this, not... You're talking about Smotrich and Ben Gavir, for example, right? Yeah, I mean, I mean, in the Likud party, there are members of parliament that have been um, voicing the desire that uh, Gaza would be wiped out, wiped out that, uh, that we... And even there's one member of parliament uh, from the Likud that actually tweeted um, do you say tweeted now in the X days, mm. posted, um, that a second Nagba, this is what we need now. So th this thing is up in the air. Smutridge has an ideology. It's not because of this war. This is his platform. His platform is about uh, uh, um, ethnic cleansing. They're already transfer advocates, and they have been yeah. um, unabashedly for many years. Um, right, Ben Gavir has a poster, a, a photograph of uh, Baruch Goldstein, yeah, um, head. in his in his house apparently head yes or hat so so this is this is a, a, a it, it's not something that can that it's not a um, a danger a concern that can, could be brushed off absolutely no and and also we don't hear even in the in the um, orders of the military generals to the pa Gazan uh, uh, public to go down south. We didn't hear assurances that they would be able to go back. Not that oral assurances are of any importance, but international assurances, something. I mean, this is a, a, a real issue. Yeah. I would I would maybe just want to also just kind of touch on that. I mean, certainly the far-right politicians are the most explicit about this, um, but there's also a real concern that there is a bit of an alignment 
between the current politicians and also the military. Like, we shouldn't forget that, I mean, Michal was referring to this earlier, that the military has been really humiliated uh, by this. I mean, beyond this question of, like, intelligence failure, but there is a shaking of trust as well, like, of even people in the South who are asking, like, where were you? Uh, it took you hours to even send, uh, you know, forces. How did you not pl- know this in advance? And how did you not deal with it on the day of? And so on and so forth. And so the Israeli military also has something to prove. Um, and if there was ever a historic opportunity for both the politicians and the generals to change, radically change the, that quote-unquote status quo in Gaza, this is the time to do so. Um, and it's not just in terms of like the Israeli political discourse. You know, just a few weeks ago, we've been seeing a heightened uh, Just a few weeks ago, we saw something similar happening between Armenia and Azerbaijan. And so this idea of ethnic cleansing and that you can re- radically remake uh, a conflict zone is not beyond the realm of possibility, even on a regional or global scale. And this is all in the midst of uh, Russia-Ukraine war and invasion and other kind of war crimes that are being committed, you know, that are even getting more attention than Israel-Palestine sometimes. Um, and I think that, and the way the power structures are now sort of, you know, aligned, especially on the Israeli side and the world, and the way the global sympathy, uh, maybe it's a bit too strong to say global sympathy, but that, you know, be- because of the massacres and atrocities, there is this also shaking of opinion that was otherwise shifting different differently over the years because of this far right, uh, this far right shift. Uh, but now I think a lot of conditions are right for different Israeli institutions and figures to try to make the most of this. Um, again, time will tell. It's still very early, but uh, there's a real, real concern that if those interests are really aligned, then all it takes is the political will and international um, absence. Um, and that seems to be the case right now. Uh, Michael, I have a question for you. Uh, while in it, really going back to a point that you made earlier about these the fears of annihilation among Israeli Jews and um, the memories, the traumatic traumatic memories that the massacre uh, rekindled of the uh, anti-Semitic persecutions in Europe. Um, Hamas's attacks were, on this view, um, simply the latest chapter of anti-Jewish hatred from time immemorial, rather than, say, a a brutal anti-colonial atrocity of the sort committed by national liberation groups in Algeria, Kenya, Vietnam, etc. Um, and there's uh, there's no denying the intergenerational trauma which makes such explanations powerful um, to people in Israel, particularly survivors of these crimes. Um, and Israel, but but Israel's leaders, of course, have deployed um, this view, um, in you know, as a in part as a justification for the war in Gaza. And I'm wondering whether you think this framework of interpretation based on collective memory is illuminating, or does it all too easily lend itself to political abuses? It's both. It's actually both. Um, I mean, the <clears throat> the intergenerational uh, trauma is quite an amazing thing. I mean, it does go from generation to generation. Not only the trauma, but also the survivor's complex. That complex that, how come I survived when the others have perished so miserably? What am I? And, and, and um, you know, 
Um, my grandfather, who was a, a famous sociologist, Zygmunt Bauman, wrote about this and, and wrote about how, um, for some, um, and, I, and, I, and I'm afraid for a growing number of Israeli Jews, um, the way to deal with the survivor's complex is, and it's funny because people have, were born after the Holocaust and still they bear this intergenerational complex is to recreate in some way the Holocaust around them, not in this real sense, but in the, in the imaginary sense, to feel as if they are still in the ghetto, to feel as if you know, the, the Gestapo is, is, is coming. And, um, and, and part of it is, it happens because this is how collective memory works. And this is how peoples, are telling their stories, uh, and, and, and that is happening. But some of it is not naive. Some of it is indoctrinated. Some of this is, uh, is manipul in manipulation. And I, as, you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not different. I'm, I was born in Israel. I was raised in Israel. I was uh, a um, subject of, of, of the Israeli uh, education system, of the Israeli media, of, of the Israeli messaging box. And so for me, I have to, to struggle hard to say, you know, we're not in the ghetto. We're not uh, uh, surrounded uh, by uh, a machinery of gen a genocidal mach machinery. So I think um, people sometimes stick to one of those edges, either say that it's all one ma big manipulation or say, you know, this is something that is genuine and should be accommodated. I think it's both. And, um, and uh, the only way to deal with it is to be um, very uh, aware uh, of this. And there are so many forces um, that, um, that have an interest uh, that Israelis would not be aware of this process that we're all going through, which basically at the end of the day, in this case, allows the government of Israel a huge leeway to do stuff that we would expect in normal societies um, to be objected fiercely to. And in Israel, instead, political violence is waged against those who, 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 who question the morality of, of, of such uh, ways of warfare. You know, this war has frequently been compared to the October War of 1973, which was also provoked by a surprise offensive, uh, Egypt's crossing of the Sinai. But the differences are just as striking. Uh, October 73 was a state-to-state -state confrontation, and Anwar Sadat launched the war uh, to recover Egyptian territory, not to challenge Israel as a state. And indeed, that war made it possible for the two states to forge a lasting peace. This war, by contrast, strikes at the very foundations of the Jewish state because it involves the still unresolved Palestine question, the status of the land's original inhabitants. Now, until now, Israel's relationship with Hamas and Gaza has been what Tariq Bakoni has described as a violent equilibrium, but it's very hard to imagine that equilibrium being restored. Uh, neither party wants it. What sort of political solution do you envisage that could allow for an end to the hostilities or at least make a lasting truce possible? Or are we looking at 
an apocalyptic situation with no end in sight. I'm just <laughs> when when, <laughs> when Adam, when you're asking when, when you're asking us to make a um, a um, forecast in a podcast that is recorded, um, that is a <laughs> recipe for us uh, finding ourselves to be fools. <laughs> a lot of stakes Look, ahead. I, <laughs> I mean, um, of course, it's too early to say, but there are several options. I think that are. Uh, now uh, being discussed. And maybe Amjad is better situated than me to answer the question, would the PA, would the PLO be ready to take over Gaza after Israel has, um, um, if it indeed manages to, and probably it will, um, to destroy the Hamas uh, governmental system in, uh, uh, and domination uh, in, 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 in the Strip. That's one option um, that, uh, that um, Israelis are talking about. Um, and it goes back to what Amjad said before about Oslo being uh, um, becoming, I don't know if it was the intention, but becoming a deluxe uh, occupation um, with uh, with um, with uh, an entity that uh, um, that provides some uh, services in that sense, so that's one thing that people are talking about. Um, another option is, um, and and again, it's too early to to talk about it, but that uh, this calamity will reignite talks. And I know it sounds crazy that I'm saying that now uh, in the midst of the horror and, and when more than a million Palestinians from, are, are, are displaced in Gaza and, and there's a humanitarian crisis. Uh, by the way, I hear um, rockets now being, being bombed. So while we are speaking, I can hear um, uh, missiles that were uh, shot from Gaza on the Tel Aviv area being intercepted. So there's like small booms that of the interception of those missiles. Um, so, but 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 this is not impossible. I mean, many many um, big wars in history ended up with uh, some kind of uh, a political process after they ended. So, um, and of course, there is the 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 option of that we discussed of. Uh, a mass displacement, which I hope uh, we'll not see. Amjad? It might just be today that I'm in a very, very dark and cynical mood, to be honest. Um, I mean, there are a lot of levels that we can look at this, obviously, in terms of paths forward. But I think what this whole episode really demonstrates is just the depth to which the system and the regime that exists now is so poisonous to any chance of politics. Um, it's poisonous to the people, to the Israelis who are, you know, producing this this regime, enabling it, justifying it. Um, it's not something that's new that's been around for ages. But it's also poisoning the way that Palestinians are able to conduct their politics. Um, you know, there's always been armed struggle um, on, the, you know, by Palestinian actors. Um, and there's, there's also been many moments of like attacks on civilians, but I think what we saw 
uh, just over a week to two weeks ago, I think is a demonstration of how the crushing of Palestinian politics by the regime metastasizes what that politics ends up manifesting as. The violence that was conducted, uh, you know, a, a week, two weeks ago, is at a scale and a level that, you know, you you haven't seen like since the Second Intifada. And the Second Intifada's violence was determined by what politics was allowed to be conducted by the regime. Uh, it's the same kind of understandings of how, you know, political circumstances and conditions determine do people pick up a gun or do they pick up a pen? Um, and the Palestinian struggle has always used both in the same way that anti-colonial movements uh, have, all around the world have tried to use. But there's something indicative to the way that poison of the apartheid regime as it exists now is really shattering. Um, also, the Palestinian response and ability to offer something different to uh, to just contestation with this regime. So beyond you know things like the fact that the Palestinian leadership needs to really get its act together and to unite in some form or another and create some new kind of consensus, which Palestinians are demanding that have been in full force, but you have these elites that are also invested somewhat in the quote-unquote status quo and who have really just uh, focused their entire interests only on their class, their elite class, more so than the people they're supposedly representing. Um and as long as that's the case, and the Palestinians themselves aren't even given the space and legitimacy to even have those uh, those conversations, uh, because I don't see there is no annihilation of Hamas anymore. There wasn't annihilation of any other kind of major Palestinian movement and actor. Uh, for the horrors that we saw, Hamas is a major political movement that still needs to be in the Palestinian political conversation, whether we like it or not. And you know. To make to have to create a bit of a mirror image, but uh, Israeli politics, Zionist politics, even before the state was established, had to reflect that as well. It had to create this kind of consensus uh, between factions which had a lot of ideological differences in many respects, even violent, uh, physically violent differences. Um, but the fact is that there's still a bit of a double standard about, and even deeper than double standard, there's a, there's no acceptance that Palestinian politics is allowed to conduct itself the way we would try to understand it, even in retrospect, for those kind of liberation movements. And it's, you know, even if it's violence, even if it's tactics we don't approve of in many respects or find morally abhorrent, but this is how the politics is now being dictated by the system that we're in. Hamas would not have conducted this if it didn't think it had any other option. And it's indicative of of how much that regime is really breaking Palestinians. Uh, and how much the region is now being complicit in this with Arab states normalizing Israel and saying we're no longer that interested in the Palestinians. We're interested in your arms. We're interested in your economy. And the United States, which still is... A and Pegasus technology. And Pegasus technology. Like like every major geopolitical actor has something uh, to align itself with the Israeli state and to let them get away with what's happening. Um, as long as that structure is in place and as long as that structure is allowed to remain and is normalized and that gets priority, then I don't see uh, the ability for Palestinians to even begin to um, offer a real substantial alternative. And these discussions are happening in Palestinian circles all the time and they're demanding, you know, they're trying to even break the conversation. Like, we're not interested in two states, one state, 50 states. Like, are you centering our rights or not? And as long as... Palestinian rights are kind of taken second place to Jewish-Israeli rights and their right to security, their right to their homeland, their right to all these aspects, which are sort of always 
put as the precedent before Palestinians that our rights are conditioned upon uh, Israelis getting theirs first in many respects, I'm, I'm putting it lightly, then I think we're not going to have the kind of solution that we need. Everything else is just kind of papering over or trying to restructure that same regime and that same uh, fundamental problem that Palestinians have been experiencing for, for decades. Thank you so much. And uh, thank you, Amjad. And thank you, Mikhail, for joining me on, t- on this episode of the LRB podcast. It's been a pleasure to talk to you both. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to be here. Yeah, thank you, Mikhail. And thank you, Adam.